I did what you asked me to not do anymore. Thanks a lot, sound team. Um, so, thank you for praying for me last week while I was in Colorado. I shared with you before the message that uh, I was going to be meeting with a group of church planters, and I have a, a passage that came out of that time that uh, this isn't what our sermon is on. I just wanted to read to you some words um, from my heart that came from the heart of your brothers and sisters out in Colorado that I just got to spend time with. It says in Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for Christ's sake. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brethren, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You know, sometimes it's really refreshing to be able to step outside of the work in the church to be able to hear how other people view what's going on in the church. And I just want you guys to know I am so deeply proud of you. It is so cool to hear um, going across the country and hearing pastors inquisitively asking, well, what's going on here? How can we replicate what is going on here? How can we continue to fan into flame what's going on here? That's awesome hearing people say that about your church. It's kind of like, I know that my kids are special. I see the beauty in them, but when somebody else starts bragging about one of my children, it's kind of like, oh, stop, 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 you know? And that's the way that I got to feel for the last couple of days. Stop, you don't have to keep bragging about our church, but tell me more about what you see. So thank you for being the kind of church that is able to be bragged on. And that's what Paul was thanking Philemon for right there. He said, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed far beyond your actual locale. People are hearing about God's grace and mercy being enacted and lived out through you guys. So I wanted to thank you for that. And uh, I'm going to ask if you would turn to Ephesians 2. The message this morning probably has the opposite tone of what I just uh, said, so they don't really fit, but uh, that's fine. Um, the, this morning, in our series on belonging, we're going to take the next logical step. The first week, we looked at our only hope in this life, and the next is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Last week, we looked at to those who belong to God, God's promises belong to us, and they find their yes and their amen in Christ. This week we're going to look at how God did not call us to himself in isolation, but he called us to be part of a family. And I'm going to give you a little disclaimer before getting into this, that this message is going to be pretty convicting to some. Um, for some, the right response is going to be repentance, honest to God, right here in the moment, change your heart, repentance. Not to go home, take some notes, reflect on it, stick them under my pillow, see if God will change me through osmosis kind of repentance. No, the Holy Spirit is able to reveal, teach, correct, convict, and he's able to do it all in a moment's time to bring about Christ likeness. And I pray that that takes place through the preaching of his word today. Um, and just to be clear, I don't know 
who that might be when I say that there's some who might be in need of taking this word to heart and having a time of repentance. I don't target people. I don't believe in bully pulpits. I'm not trying to take a passive-aggressive shot across the collective vow in order to get a message out to sink a few people here. But I also don't think that the admonishment is intended for everybody. I believe the best about you guys. I want to be really clear about that. I want to assume that you are walking in obedience to the things that I'm going to be sharing and that some of you, really, this message is just going to serve as a be encouraged, stay the course. But part of believing the best is believing that if you need to change, that you will. You will listen to the Holy Spirit, that you'll put on your big boy pants, even if it's a tough word, and be able to ask the Holy Spirit for the power to help you change. I want to give one other disclaimer before I get into it. I am not mad. Nothing is eating at me. I'm not frustrated. Since I am generally just a very jokey kind of person and jovial and lighthearted and love to play around... I've fallen victim to a caricature of myself that I've helped to paint. And the result being that whenever I preach something that has a serious or somber tone, every single time people walk up to me afterwards and say, are you okay, man? Is something eaten at you this week? You just didn't seem yourself. There's some passages you're not supposed to sit up here and crack jokes about. I mean, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus didn't just sit around giving yuck-yucks the whole time. It's okay if sometimes things are a little bit serious. To walk in grace and truth, Jesus had moments where the little children were sitting on his lap because he was so gentle and approachable, and he had other times where he was flipping tables. Today's going to be a little bit more of the table-flippy variety. Um, the reason behind the somber tone is because the doctrine that we're going to look at, belonging to a people, has come under fire in recent years, both explicitly but frighteningly much more implicitly through the lack of caring and involving about involvement in the local assembly of Christ, resulting in a general malaise that I've seen across the American church, that we need a new reformation, a new series of prophets to just stand up and shake people from the uncomfortability, the sediment that has just settled in the American church. For the first time in history, we have an entire group of people who are unchurched yet consider themselves to be Christians. People who claim to belong to Christ, yet you have, they have no interest and give no thought to belonging to the body of Christ. People who claim to belong to the body of Christ but have never given much thought to what participation and being a part of the body of Christ actually entails. And we live in a culture that has crafted church to cater to the lowest common denominator. And finally, somebody needs to stand up and say, look, the emperor has no clothes on. 
We don't have to keep capitulating to this group of people. And today's message is a message intended to do just that, to take a look at the state of the American church. And like that fable of old as the unclothed king was going through the streets and everybody just stood there trying to pretend like this normal was the new normal. Somebody had to be the one to stand up and say, am I nuts? Or does the emperor have no clothes on? Are you all just pretending to see this? Because what I see is a naked guy being paraded through the streets and hiding in plain sight. Look, what I want to do is throw all my cards on the table at the start and tell you that I will be working off of the assumption that if you call yourself a Christian that you belong to or you are in the process of becoming a member of a gospel-preaching local assembly of believers. So as we flesh out what that means to belong to a local assembly of believers, we might hit on some areas where you're in need of grace to grow in your Christian life. Look, man, that's just part of the normal Christian life. That's okay. But I am going to be working off of this assumption that you are becoming a part of a gospel-preaching church, and that is normative for the Christian life. There's just this presupposition that we should all be able to hold to, that if you call yourself a believer in Jesus, that you belong to a group of other believers in Jesus. And I'm also going to work off of the assumption that, and this is where it starts to swim upstream, people. This is where you're kind of pushing against the modern churchianity feel-goodery of the day. I'm going to assume that if you have zero interest in belonging to the body of Christ, it's because you have zero interest in Christ himself. That's the statement that I labored over. I read throughout church history people that have made such declarations and had to really just take that to Scripture and see if I was in agreement with it. But if you have zero interest in belonging to the body of Christ, I'm going to prove this morning from the word that you have zero interest in Christ himself. You want to know why I can believe that? Because the Bible works off of that assumption. You want to know why else? Because all of history has worked off of that assumption until the last 50 years or so. And it's either all of history was wrong, yet we've just finally figured it out in the last 50 years as people have stopped being as engaged in their local churches, or maybe something has gone astray. You know, what the problem was back in Jesus' time? Think about this. Try to wrap your mind around this. He had to deal with people who thought that they belonged to God because they were such good church attenders. He had to tell them, look, not everybody who's sitting here in the pew with you who says, Lord, Lord, will be proven genuine in their faith in the day that judgment comes. Many are going to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. So Jesus' issue was trying to convince people, just because you show up regularly and do all the right religious things doesn't mean that you actually belong. And we have come so far as a society that we've actually deal with the opposite. Now it's, who are you to say that this person who shows zero interest in belonging to the organized church, that they don't belong to Jesus? 
What about this person who got hurt by the church? What about this person who came out of a bad church? What about bad pastor? Surely that person has the right to be a lone ranger because you can't really blame any lack of semblance of biblical life on their past. And why would they need to take any personal accountability for their own lack of interest in the things of God? It's got to be somebody else's fault, right? I have a question for you. If you think that that's an excuse, do you really expect to deal with bitterness that drives you to isolation by being bitter and driving yourself to isolation? I mean, I've talked to so many people that this group of post-churched is actually a group of people that books are written about. It used to just be the churched and the unchurched, and now there's an entire category of people called the post-churched. And when you start to go through the stories, it's this pastor hurt me. This church was hypocritical. You know what? Get over it. People are going to hurt you. This isn't heaven. You know how many hypocrites there are in this church? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I don't know. Somebody else is doing the attendance numbers, but if you want to flash them up at the end, then you'll know how many hypocrites there are here. And you know what else you'll know? You'll know how many people there are that have the potential of really hurting yourself, hurting you if you let yourself be vulnerable in their presence. But can you give me one example in the Bible where somebody was just like, look, Barnabas was mean to me, so I'm going to show him, and I'm just not going to go to church anymore. And it's not my fault, it's Barnabas' fault, right? You know, you're never going to find that passage, no matter how many times you read the book, because the Bible works off of the assumption that if you belong to Jesus, you belong to the body of Jesus. The Bible works off the assumption that if you love Jesus, that you demonstrate it through participation in the family of Jesus, period. But, 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 right, before we get into Ephesians, what about the thief on the cross, right? He never had to go to church. To that, I would say, do you really want to base your Christian life off of the example of the lowest possible denominator in Scripture? Really? I've been asked that question so many times that I just kind of came armed with the answer so that nobody bothers trying to ask me the question about what about the thief on the cross after the service. If you say, what about the thief on the cross, my reply to you is going to be, what about literally every other person that calls themselves a Christian in the Bible? Like literally every single one other than the thief on the cross. So if you want to leave space on the thief on the cross, I would say that's awesome in terms of preaching God's unrelenting, amazing love with regards to salvation, that his hands are continually outstretched, the disobedient and obstinate, like it says in Romans chapter 10. But he's probably not the example I would go to on how to live the normative Christian life. So we're going to work off the assumption that if you belong to Jesus that you're going to be a part of his family and spend the rest of our morning talking about what that looks like. Turn to Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. So by looking at what it means to be a people, you have to come to grips first with the fact that you started out as an anti-people. That's what the first three verses are. He starts off with the simple truth of telling you that you are dead. A dead people are not a people. Dead people don't belong to anything. Dead people don't embrace their role within a greater family. When you were dead, you walked according to the principle of your own self-rule. And make no mistake about it. You thought that you ran you. Nietzsche understood this. He said that it's not enough to ignore God. That if we really ever want to live the autonomous, independent life, that we have to kill God. Listen to this quote from Nietzsche's, it says, God is dead. God remains dead. Why? We have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives, and who will wipe the blood off of our hands? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest of this deed too great for us? We must ourselves become gods to simply be worthy of what we've done. Nietzsche said this because he knew that even in his insanity, that if there is a God, that we belong to him. And we could never be autonomous. So Nietzsche did what the most consistent thing that he could do is declare himself independent by declaring God to be dead. Now, we obviously don't believe that, right? That's something that we as Christians don't hold to. So why do Christians try to live an independent Christian life? When it's so clear that Scripture calls us to interdependence. Paul goes on to say that we found our sense of belonging by trying to carry out whatever felt good. And the only crew that you could really say that you belong to was this crew that he affectionately calls the children of wrath. And then in verse 4, it all happens, doesn't it? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So even though you were headed one way, but God, God stepped in and said, child, you're not going to run that way any longer. I don't care how fast you think you are. Once I release the hounds on you, I will chase you down. That is the doctrine of irresistible grace that we celebrate. That when he wants you, he's going to make you his. And by grace, he saved you. You brought nothing to your salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. And when you were at your lowest, but God, being rich in mercy, and by grace, you now belong to him. Look at verses 6 through 10. And he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards those of us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the free gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. 
So by grace, you belong to him. That's what we've been looking at the first two weeks of this series. That we don't belong to the way of wreckage any longer that he describes in those first three verses. Amen? Sin is no longer your master. This world is no longer your master. The lusts of the flesh are no longer your master. He goes on to say in Romans 6, you'll be mastered by nothing. Because that old person who was mastered died along with the old master, and you've been given a new master. Man, and in the remaining time this morning, I want to look at how our new master gave us a new family. We belong to Jesus, and by his grace, we've been placed into his family. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you were the Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, and which is made with flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So just like the first paragraph, he starts off by talking about the bad news of what you were. He says you were Gentiles according to the flesh. What that means is you were a foreigner to the family of God. You didn't belong there. It would have been like just showing up at a stranger's house and sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner. Like it, it was, there was no sense of belonging in this. He says you were separated. Anyone here come from a dysfunctional family? You don't need to raise your hands, especially like, you know, if you're like me and you have your parents in your own church, you, you want to be careful on that one, right? <laughs> yes, let me tell you about my folks. Um, so, but, anyone have a family member that you're separated from? It hurts, doesn't it? It just doesn't feel natural. When the holidays come up and you start to ask those questions of what am I going to do? I'm probably going to have to see this person that brings up pain when I see them. This is not a fun thing to think about. We don't like the feeling of being alienated from family because being alienated from family reminds us of the brokenness that is in this world and the sin and destruction that just run roughshod through this world. But God is saying that even though our family was defined apart from Christ and apart from his grace, not just separated, but actually he uses the word alienated from God and his promises that we looked at last week, alienated from his family, alienated from God himself, who we said is our only hope in this life and the next. But just like when we're alone in our sin, in the verse three verses of this chapter, Christ intervened with these beautiful words, look at verse 13. And I have a feeling that you know what they'll be. They start out very similar to verse 4. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create to himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility but God 
This passage breaks down, this is called a chiasm. This breaks down the same way that those first four verses did. Here's this bad news. Here were you, who's here you were when you were alienated from God. But God, these beautiful words. And if you circle things in your Bible, circle anytime you see the words, but God, because almost every time it's you were just boom, you were running as fast as you could in this direction, but God grabbed you by the nape of the neck and he said, no, you're not going to run that way any longer. You are mine. And that's what he's saying about your familiar relationship. You are running towards solitude. You are running towards isolation, but God intervened. In verses 1 through 3, he explained who we were apart from the hope of the gospel. And then, but God, in this paragraph, it's who we were apart from the gospel in a familial sense, but now in Christ. And listen how he explains the but now regarding your new family life. You who were once far off have been brought near, is the first thing he says. Praise the Lord. If that was the only truth we looked at this week, that would be more than enough. Then he keeps going with this grace explosion in these next verses, doesn't he? So you have been brought near. He says, he's become our peace. He broke down the dividing wall between us and God. And in doing so, he broke down the dividing walls between God's people. He made us one family. In his flesh, he destroyed any dividing Wall. And that means that when Christians have dividing walls, think through all the stuff that you've heard Christians say about other Christians, the people that you're going to spend eternity with, maybe stuff that you didn't say, but you had in your heart and you saw, just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that maybe you didn't kill anybody, but you had anger on your heart and you felt this way towards somebody. And he's saying that level of malice, I just see that as murderous. So maybe you wouldn't actually say hey, I have a dividing wall with these Christians over here. But what this says is he destroyed any dividing wall, so if there remains one, it's because you built it. He didn't. He gave his life to destroy the things that alienate us. And then it says he made peace. And then his conclusion, this is so beautiful. I don't know if anybody here knows what it's like to feel alone. If anyone here knows what it's like to feel like you're the proverbial square peg in a round hole or like you never fit in, if anybody here knows what it's like to do things because of insecurities so that you could just try to be able to fit in with another group of people, he says, you don't have to do that because I did everything that you need to make you fit in. You're no longer strangers. Let me hear you say that. We are no longer strangers. We're a family. We belong to each other. You know why I take that so seriously? Do you know why I start with a somber tone to this message? Because Christ takes it so seriously. Every single illusion that he gives to what he tore down in order to be able to reconcile and give you peace, he makes an apples-to-apples comparison with a destruction of his own flesh that made it possible. So as we celebrate communion, and you think about just unreconciled relationships you realize that as he was broken he broke down that dividing walls we celebrate this goodness and we celebrate the cup that was poured out and we celebrate the body that was broken what we're celebrating is there's no longer a wall 
between us because he destroyed it all, enabling us to be a family, and now we belong to each other. So in our remaining couple of minutes, what I'm going to do, <laughs> this is going to be fun. I'm going to give it my best shot. He gave his life to make a people, so we should give a lot of consideration to what he gave his life for. Um, just to, real quick to bring you up to date with the progression of Ephesians. He elected you. He adopted you. He predestined you. He was kind enough to reveal to you that you were dead. He saved you by his grace. He placed you in a family. And then he gave 59 one another statements about what it means to belong to one another in the church. Um, these are perhaps the best picture of what it means to belong to one another. It's proof that God it mattered to him so much that he repeated it over and over and over again. Look, he must have known that this would need repetition, folks. I'm going to go through them quickly because Pastor Daniel is going to touch on some of these next week. But out of the 59 one another's, I took 41 unique ones. And I'm just going to rattle them off rapid fire. If anybody's on Facebook, I put them up on Facebook beforehand. But to show you what it means that we are not our own, but we belong to God, and in belonging to God, we belong to the people of God and belong to his family, and we're going to look at how he defines that through his words. So just some of the one another's, be at peace with one another, Mark 9, 50, wash one another's feet as servants, John 13, 14, love one another, which is repeated about 20 different times, John 15, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12, live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16, stop passing judgment on one another, Romans 16, have equal concern for one another, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, serve one another in love, Galatians chapter 5, stop devouring one another or you'll be destroyed by one another, Galatians chapter 5, do not become conceited, provoking one another, carry one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 2, be patient and bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4, forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 32, speak to one another in Psalm hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. In humility, consider one another greater than yourselves, Philippians 2.3. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another, Colossians chapter 3. Forgive whatever grievances you might have against one another, Colossians 3.13. Teach one another, Colossians 3.16. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow to one another. Once again, 1 Thessalonians 4, love one another and then encourage one another in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 4, build one another up, encourage one another daily, spur one another on to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, do not slander one another, don't grumble against each other, James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, James chapter 5, love one another deeply and from the heart, 1 Peter 3, live in harmony with one another, 1 Peter 3, 8, offer hospitality to each other without grumbling, 1 Peter 4, 9, each one should use his gift to serve one another, 1 Peter 4, 10, and clothe yourselves in humility to one another, 1 Peter 5, 5. How, how could you honestly expect to live these out if you don't commit to the fact that you are not your own, that you belong to God? We no longer live to ourselves. There's people who belong to God. We now belong to one another. And for God to repeat something 59 different ways means that it probably mattered to him an awful lot. So shouldn't it matter to us? 
So some application questions to just prick your heart to see how this matters. Do you truly understand and embrace that you belong to a people? Do you live your life as you didn't wake up on your own this morning? Like when you were deciding, should I come here? Ah, do I, am I needed to be here? Um, you're not here just for you. You're here because I need you. Janet needs you. Marcy needs you. Mike needs you. That's what it means to one another. That's the things that I just rattled off until I almost just fainted. That's, <laughs> you're not your own. Would you, would your answer be in line with what the Bible has to say about what it means to belong to one another? So as I ask you if you understand what it means to belong to one another, I just read to you what the scriptures have to say about belong to one another. Are you living out the one another's? Have you made a conscious lifestyle decision based around one anothering? Belonging means knowing and being known. Are you becoming known to where people know you and know that you belong to this community? Would you be willing to ask somebody to assess if they see your belonging? Honestly, this is where you start to see how much do I want to get honest with somebody? Would you be willing to ask someone, if I gave no judgment, if I gave no blowback regarding how honestly you answered this question, would you tell me if you see these one another's being lived out in my life? Would you be willing to do that? That's just transparency. It's okay if you fall short. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's why there's grace. Would you be willing to ask somebody to assess what they see? Does your treasure show that you belong to a people? If all your treasure belongs to you, it's hard to say that you really take seriously belonging to another people, isn't it? Does your sacrifice show that you belong to a people? And does your heart show that you belong to a people? Guys, we, we are not together just because we're a common bunch of misfits that had nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. We're collectively called together to one another, and by this the world shall know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the one another's throughout Scripture. Give us the grace to be able to live them out. Lord, give us your spirit to enable us to do the supernatural. And God, thank you that by your spirit you bind us, by your body that was broken for us, you have brought us who were formerly far off and have made us near by destroying the wall of hostility against us. And we celebrate that now as we look to the breaking of your flesh and the pouring out of your blood through this meal that we call communion. In Jesus' name, amen.